I love coming to church. And it ain't just because I get paid to do it. <laughs> I look forward every week to seeing you, to being with you, and whenever possible to greet each one of you personally, to welcome you, to hear your stories, to listen to how God has been at work in your lives. These are the stories of the community of faith and they matter to us. As we were singing that chorus, it was new to me today. I wanna see it. I wanna believe it. I'd add one more line, I wanna live it. My spirit has been troubled most of the week. Watching the news, watching the events globally, watching the stresses and strains in the global community, wars and rumors of wars, threats, economic uncertainty that has impact on millions and millions and millions of people that most of us never experience. It seems to me that if we are to be the people of God that we carry that burden. That our hearts are heavy and our hearts break with what we see and what we hear. And my prayer is that our hearts break when, as Pastor Mateo suggested this morning, when people try and separate us and create groups for us to identify with that are not part of the kingdom of God. Even when people try to convince us they're part of the kingdom of God, doesn't mean they are part of the kingdom of God. Because there is a common set of values and ideals and purposes that are part of the kingdom of God for every person in God's kingdom. And we come to some of that teaching this morning in the parable of the Good Samaritan. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. And as Diane has already read the passage for us, I think it valuable for us to have our Bibles open to follow along with the preacher of the day, whoever that may be. To have our finger on the word, to have our eyes in the word. And so it is this morning we come now to the next parable in our series in Luke chapter 10. The outstanding preacher John Lloyd Ogilvie has called the parable of Jesus, has called the parables of Jesus the autobiography of God. What a fitting label. In other words, the parables are one way by which Jesus is describing the life and the purposes and the interests of God. The parables are a way for Jesus to teach those who will read and those who will listen. These are the priorities of God and this is what matters to God and this is how we who are God's people are to live. And so the parables become for us in a world that we have already described, manna, provision, word of life, that which sustains us, that which gives us hope, that which comes to combat the disappointment 
the stress, the evil that exists around us every day. Ogilvy has suggested that the parable of the Good Samaritan is the story of Jesus. That Jesus came to a world much like the Jericho Road, tremendous need, people hurt and wounded beyond their control by others who robbed them and left them without further care or consideration. Think with me for a moment what it means to have someone rob you. The man on the side of the Jericho Road wasn't just robbed of his possessions, he was robbed of his dignity. He was robbed of his identity. He was robbed of his health. There are people in our world and in our lives that will steal from us every day and not everything that is stolen is tangible. Many times people rob one another by demeaning them and diminishing them and marginalizing them And we politely sometimes call them bullies, but not every person who robs another is identified as a bully. And so part of the great hope of the parable that Jesus tells today is not just to instruct us, but also it is to sensitize us. As we did last Sunday with the parable of the lost son think about where you are located in this story think about that as we make our way through this teaching as part of the autobiography of God events in Luke chapter 9 and the first half of chapter 10 help inform our understanding of the parable of the Good Samaritan. If we go back to chapter 9, we find Jesus with the disciples, and he is traveling with them, and he is shaping them, he is forming them. He is involved in what we call today in contemporary theological language, he's involved in spiritual formation. Now some of you scratch your heads and say, what is spiritual formation? It's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life that is forming you to be more like God. It is that continuing process of sanctification, what we call holiness in the Church of the Nazarene. It is that process by which God seeks to refine us and shape us and mold us more and more into God's image and less in the image of our own self-interests. We call it spiritual formation. So if you hear us toss that word around, don't be concerned about it. It's simply the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Sometimes people want to call it discipleship. Discipleship is a good word, but I don't think it captures everything in spiritual formation because the work of the Holy Spirit goes beyond the curriculum. It goes beyond life. It goes beyond every moment of our being and our living. So don't be afraid to embrace the word spiritual formation. It's not a communist thing. It's not a conspiracy. (laughs) 
but hopefully we can recognize the spiritually forming work of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. Are we okay there? And so in Luke chapter 9, in the first half of chapter 10, Jesus is involved in the spiritual formation work of the disciples. He travels with them. He takes them out. And so in the beginning of chapter 9, he sends out the 12. And he empowers them to do ministry. He empowers them to heal. He empowers them to cast out demons. He empowers them to preach the word. And that's what they're doing. And they come back enthused. In chapter 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Can you imagine what that looked like to the disciples as they're being formed by the Holy Spirit for the work that is yet to come in their lives? We often teach about those miracles, but we sometimes forget about those who are observing and what they learned and how it shaped them. In chapter 9, Peter confesses that Jesus is Messiah and Jesus predicts his death. He heals a demon-possessed boy. He predicts his death a second time. And he moves into the area of the Samaritans and what happens to Jesus? He is rejected by the Samaritans. He faces opposition. Can you imagine what it was like for the disciples to see Jesus facing opposition? Do you suppose they would ever face opposition in their work after Pentecost? Have you ever faced opposition in your faithfulness to God? We have. In chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 72, and they too are blessed by God's power. It is evident in these two chapters that Jesus is teaching, shaping, and forming his followers by letting him see his faith, his experience through the miracles as he does the work of God and as they hear his teaching. And during this period of spiritual formation, Jesus encounters the lawyer and hears a question from the lawyer. And beginning with that opening verse of the parable, Luke's presentation of Jesus shifts from a narrative to a dialogue with the lawyer, but the message is the same. If the reader seeks to share life in the kingdom, their life will be determined by Jesus' message. Let's hear that again. If you and I seek life in the kingdom, if we seek to share life in the kingdom, our lives will be shaped by Jesus' message. And just as Jesus was shaping and forming the disciples and the lawyer, I pray we will be shaped by his word this morning so that the message of Jesus will compel us deeper into life in God's kingdom than we ever have been before. Most of us have heard or read this passage many times. Like the parable of the lost son, we've probably heard it preached many times. But for some of us, this may be a new parable, a new story for us. Whatever your experience with the passage, my hope today is that we will all hear it in new ways, differently than we've heard it before. This wonderful parable can awaken our spiritual curiosity at a number of points. For the attorney, the lawyer brings a question that seeks to set Jesus up. 
It seeks to trap Jesus. By the way, that's not kingdom behavior. We don't treat one another like that in the kingdom. We don't seek to trap one another. We don't seek to ask leading questions that set someone up for an answer that satisfies us. I know you were wondering about that. But the lawyer already knows the answer to the question he asked Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Amy Jill Levine helps us understand that the grammatical form of the question in the Greek in the original language is a single action do as if it is something to be checked off the lawyer's list. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What thing can I do so that I can gain eternal life? We note that in Luke's account, Jesus doesn't get caught up in the lawyer's question, but rather asks in verse 26, what is written in the law and how do you read it? In other words, Jesus says to the attorney, you are the learned one. You've been trained in this. What's your reading of the law? And the lawyer answers with the standard, love the Lord and love your neighbor, which are foundational to Jewish theology and was taught to every Jew from a very young age. There is no new ground being explored here in this dialogue between the attorney and Jesus. In verse 28, Jesus affirms the lawyer's correct answers, but the lawyer doesn't stop here. He asks another curious question, Luke says, to justify himself. He's still seeking to get on top of the discussion. And the lawyer asks, but who is my neighbor? Think about how selective that question is because it implies that there are possibly some people who are not my neighbor. Joel Green observes that the question of who is my neighbor is not so much to determine whom, to whom he must show love, but to calculate the identity of those to whom he need not show love. The juxtaposition of the original question of what must I do to inherit eternal life with a question asked to define who isn't a neighbor sounds a bit like what's the least I can do to gain eternal life? Which lends itself to a mentality of minimizing our responsibilities. Just tell me what I need to do to check off my list to gain eternal life. But here is the curious thing to me. The parable that Jesus tells is not intended to expose the lawyer's theological shortcoming. But the parable that Jesus tells is to teach his followers what it means to share life in the kingdom of God as messengers of Jesus. See, Jesus doesn't get engaged in the tit for tat that the lawyer wants to engage in. Jesus moves the discussion beyond that for all of those who will listen and read. 
And so it is a man is robbed, is wounded, and left for dead on his way to Jericho. His near lifeless body left in the ditch on the roadside. Which is seen by a priest and a Levite who change course when they see him and go around him. It is as if they cross to the other side of the street. We could get distracted by their behavior and we could be harsh on them, but they are not the focus of Jesus' story. Some have suggested that they were avoiding the man because they were intent on keeping their ceremonial duties that required them to remain pure. But we are reminded that Luke says they were traveling away from Jerusalem, away from their responsibilities. And so ceremonial duty to purification wasn't really significant. They may have had concerns, legitimate concerns, about the wounded man being a, a plant by robbers, a diversion for robbers, or perhaps they were concerned that the robbers were still in the vicinity and they might be attacked as well. Whatever their reasons, they chose duty to one segment of the law over duty to another portion of the law. Let's look a bit deeper into the context of the priest and the Levite. Green notes, both men are born into their professions as members of the tribe of Levi. They are descendants of Aaron, the original priest. And so their worthiness, their identity is judged by, by their ancestry, not by their performance. And because they're ancestors of Aaron, they have obligations that they think are more important because Jerusalem was the center of deciding who was and who was not acceptable. And they represented that power of Jerusalem. And there would be those in their circles who would laud them for not stopping and helping the man. Because the system of thinking was, there are those who are acceptable and there are those who are not. That was Jewish thought and theology of the day. And so they are accustomed to being evaluated on the basis of their identity and their role, not on the basis of their performance. Dr. Green's comment piques my curiosity. Is there any chance that contemporary readers of the parable could become accustomed to being evaluated on our identity as Christians? As if to identify as a Christian is enough. We have a lot of that language in our country. We have prided ourselves in the language that we are a Christian nation. And we seek to be evaluated by identity rather than performance. And so Jesus comes with his parable and said, let's talk about identity and let's talk about how the kingdom of God performs and who we want to identify with.
If Jesus' parable is about how to live in the kingdom of God, how would we do if we were evaluated on our performance with biblically defined neighbors? Martin Luther King Jr. said it this way, my imagination tells me that these two men may have been afraid. If I help him, what will happen to me? But the helpful traveler asked the question, if I don't help him, what will happen to him? Jesus draws out the presence of self-interest for the lawyer who is not my neighbor. And for the two men, what will happen to me? Versus kingdom love, which will ask, what will happen to him or them if I don't stop? Can we see the conflict in values between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world? Can we see the conflict in values between the systems in which we participate sometimes unknowingly that say, these are acceptable, but these people are not. These people are welcome, but these people are not welcome. These are the folks I identify with, and these are the folks that I will have nothing to do with. These are the folks worthy of my time, my effort, but these are the folks who are not. Jesus' parable draws the line pretty clearly for us. Jesus identifies a third traveler, a Samaritan, who stopped, tended his wounds, put him on his donkey, took him to an inn, paid for his care, and indicated he would come back to pay any additional amount owed. Pastor Brad reminded us two weeks ago that the original text of these passages did not have titles to them like Good Samaritan. Those are editorial comments added later. Such titles for chapters and verses often influence our understanding of the story. Why is it necessary for us to define the Samaritan as good? That's sort of like me saying, Pastor Darwin's a good Christian. Why does he need to be a good Christian? Why doesn't he just need to be a Christian? And part of the reason we attach labels like that is because the word Christian has become so diluted in its meaning and its effect that we need additional language to clarify what we mean when we describe someone as a Christian. Committed or good, mature. Add whatever word you wanna add. But it would be helpful for us if we acknowledged that we have diluted the meaning of the word to where it literally means almost nothing today. Is that troubling? I hope so. If it's not troubling, I'll be in the back. Levine notes that the original hearers would have thought it odd to label a Samaritan as good. She goes on to note that the challenge of identifying as a Samaritan 
is that it becomes one's identity to help the poor. And limiting the Samaritan's identity to such activities to turn the parable into morality play rather than an invitation to participate in the kingdom of God. As Dr. King suggested, we need to flip the question, what will happen to them if I don't help? Dr. Green suggests Jesus' portrayal of a Samaritan as one who embodies the law and whose comportment models the covenant faithfulness of God and whose doing so stands in sharp contradistinction to the practices of temple personnel on the road serves a wider motif to deconstruct the human existence sanctioned by the religious establishment in Jerusalem. That's a pretty heavy paragraph. But what he's saying is Jesus is pushing back against the teaching in Jerusalem that says some people are welcome and some are not. Jesus' parable is spoken against systemic religion that defines people by categories other than being beloved by God. We heard that last week in the message. We heard it this morning in the worship set. And I will say it again. All people in God's creation are beloved by God. All people in God's creation are beloved by God. And let me say that to us here because some of us don't believe we're loved by God. Some of us are asking questions, why did God allow that to happen to me? Others of us are asking questions, if God loves me, why did the person who claims to be a Christian do that to me? You see, folks, there are people wounded along the side of the road we travel that we can't even see their woundedness. And so that's why it matters that the unconditional love the Samaritan showed to the man on the road becomes a part of the nature of this place. Doesn't matter what someone's story is, doesn't matter. Let's begin with unconditional love and allow people to tell their story if they want to tell their story, but they will know that they are beloved not only by God, but by us. This parable is not intended to teach the original hearers to help others. They were already commanded to do so, love thy neighbor as thyself. The parable intended to teach God's practice of neighboring Neighboring, it's a verb. If you don't know the word, just believe I just made it up. <laughs> neighboring is a verb that does. Neighboring is a word that engages and involves and cares and acts. What we see in this parable is Jesus teaching God's practice of neighboring and even though the lawyer seeks to set a trap with a question that seeks to embarrass Jesus, Jesus shows patience and neighbors the lawyer.
In other words, Jesus invited the lawyer to life in the kingdom of God when he says, go and do likewise. God's practice of merciful neighboring is to seek and keep seeking us to keep showing up in kindness as a means of grace. For contemporary readers, the parable takes the form of a salvation message. Remember, the original question was about eternal life, or if you will, resurrection, or in contemporary Christian parlance, salvation. The central question is, whoever understands how to be the neighbor to anyone we encounter has understood what is necessary to inherit eternal life. Um, I'm going to get in really deep water here, Pastor Brad. So you come rescue me. I fully believe that we come to Jesus and find forgiveness of our past, of our sin. We confess that. God forgives us. The sin is covered by the blood. But I also think that I think that if we forget to neighbor as God neighbors, we can negate that work of God in our lives. because it diminishes the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Because it fails to follow through on the promise of the cross. And so it is, friends, that those of us like the lawyer who know scripture and know the law and know what it means when we say love God and love your neighbor, I love our neighbor, the question is, are we neighboring? Are we neighboring selectively? Or are we neighboring as God neighbors? There are three unfinished and incomplete storylines in the parable. The lawyer. I've been wondering all week, did he go and do likewise? The wounded man. How did he respond to the care and love lavished on him? And each of us, how do we respond to the invitation of God's kingdom to love the neighbor without predetermined boundaries? Green says it this way, in the language of the current passage, love of neighbor flows out of radical love of God. How will you and I love? How will you and I love? Let's stand together.
receive this benediction. You've heard it before, but it is fitting for this day. You go nowhere by accident. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. He has a purpose for you being there. Christ who indwells you has something he wants to do through you where you are. Believe this and go in the grace and love and power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in love.